Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Elissa Branch, and this is Housing Wire Daily. For today's episode, Housing Wire Editor-in-Chief Sarah Wheeler interviews senior mortgage reporter Bill Conroy, who covers the secondary mortgage market. The pair discuss the rise of the private label market, the new conforming loan limits, and a recent report by Kroll Ratings on risky loan review practices. But before you listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Regor's appraisal platform connects lenders to their appraisal vendors with unprecedented efficiency and scalability. Smart automations, powerful integrations, and unique workflows help Regor's customers quickly scale up or down with demand, while simultaneously driving faster, easier, and more transparent appraisals. Integrating deeply with your LOS and POS, Regor delivers the right data and documentation to the right people at the right time, reducing double work for your team. Learn more at regora.com. That's R-E-G-G-O-R-A dot com. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with the latest episode of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing senior mortgage reporter Bill Conroy, who covers the secondary mortgage market for Housing Wire. We're going to talk about the rise of the private label market, the new conforming loan limits, which are very high and cut into jumbo territory, and a recent report by Kroll Ratings on, on risky loan review practices. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Doing great. So excited to get to interview you today. And, uh, you know, before we dive into our topics, I'd love to give our audience a chance to find out more about you. You joined Housing Wire not that long ago, pretty recently, but you have decades of experience as a business journalist for weekly newspapers and magazines and five pretty different cities, you know, so that's Milwaukee, Phoenix, Minneapolis, St. Paul, San Antonio, and, and Seattle. And you served as the editor-in-chief of Scotsman Guide. Um, You've also been an investigative correspondent for several online publications with national or international audiences on some really interesting beats, including the drug war, law enforcement corruption, and national security. You have a very impressive resume of reporting on complex, difficult topics, which is why we're so excited to um, have you uh, join our team. So how does that kind of experience inform what you do now? Well, you know, I, I I get asked that question occasionally, and I and and so I had to think about it. And the one common denominator across all those those different beats and cities is I covered business. I mean, I followed the money, put it that way. <laughs> and so that's that's really even as an investigative reporter, that's what you you end up doing most most of the time is if if you want to get to the bottom of something, you follow the money, and that's business reporting. So I I really think you know, at the end of the day, that that's what I've been doing my whole career is business reporting. It's just for applying those, those tools and techniques to different beats in different cities. That's all. So it, it, yeah, it has definitely been an interesting career and I can see where people looking at it from the outside say, none of that really makes sense together. What are you doing? But really that is the, the beeline through it all. It's just follow the money and, and do, you know, solid business reporting and let the facts, you know, readers interpret the facts for themselves as best as possible because, um, what I've discovered uh, too many times is that when you step out in front of a story and try to be the expert yourself, 
that's when things go go south real fast. <laughs> so you got to let you got to let the the people you're interviewing and the, and the facts speak for them for for themselves. Well, I think that's that's true, and also um, just one of the really important things about business reporting that that applies to any kind of reporting that you've done or, or that you're doing for us, which is find the right people to talk to, develop a whole host of sources across different spectrums. I mean, that's so important, and you've already done that in the short time you've been with us. We've been thrilled with what you're doing. Yeah, well, it's a it's a big world, though. I've got, I mean, so you wake up every day with with more to do, and you know, I guess that's that's job security if you do it well, right? <laughs> it, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. You never feel like you have enough sources. Uh, it, it, I, at least I don't. Well, you know, uh, one of the exciting topics, so, so we hired you really wanted you to do, um, you know, look at the secondary market that that was a part uh, when I joined housing wire way back in 2013, we covered that pretty extensively. And then it, it kind of fell to the wayside there with different hires or different people coming and going. And we really wanted to um, beef up that coverage once again, because that's that's really, you know, we want to we want to have all things housing. That's our motto. And so we want to take it through from, you know, the first time, you know, the, the first way someone's starting to look for a house all the way through the mortgage transaction to the to the secondary market where that that loan gets sold. And so, you know, one of the things one of the exciting topics you're covering for us is the non QM market. We saw this market almost completely disappear. You know, it, in the dark days of 2020, boy, that that was scary, and and you know, people had to kind of pause their originations there. But it made a huge comeback in 2021. And you know, apart from jumbo and investment properties, which we'll talk about shortly, we're really seeing a jump because of gig workers and entrepreneurs, right? So these loans are harder to underwrite. But you recently reported on some of the automation that's targeting uh, those kinds of loans specifically. So, so what are some of the in- innovations we might see there? To set the stage on that, one of the one of the things that uh, is expected to happen next year if rates bump up, and again, controlled interest rate increases, you know, 50 to 75 basis points makes a difference in that market. Um, so we go to high threes or 4% at the end of 22, 222. Um, that's, and it's controlled and not volatile. That, that's actually very good for the non-QM market um, because it, uh, it'll push a lot of uh, refis to the side and then purchase loans, you know, are on the map. And and non-QM does well in that environment because there's a lot of <clears throat> loans that that they can handle that maybe don't fit into the agency box. Um, and, you know, that's why they think next year is going to be big for them. This year already, you know, they're looking at a $25 billion market for securitization. And next year, they think the potential for the market is, you know, up to $200 billion, some say $300 billion. So to go from $25 billion, which was a, a great year for them, to that level, they're going to have to, you know, that's where they think automation is going to have to play a role. So it's really in its infancy. And uh, it, it, right now we know, for example, Angel Oak, um, is trying to develop some kind of desktop underwriter, automated desktop underwriter for non-QM loans. Um, that shows up in a bond rating uh, report on them. So a lot of what's going on is not necessarily out in the public yet. And I'm still reporting on it, trying to figure out how they're going to do it because all these loans are a little different, right? Non-QM is not cookie cutter. Um, so to do to create a, any kind of automated systems for it, is is going to take some some you know some doing and you know I guess we'll see how they how they accomplish that. But even if it doesn't underwrite everything, like if it just takes some of the tasks and automates them, like even if it's plugging in you know road information to save the underwriter's time, that 
create some efficiencies that, that can allow them to keep up with the pace of the growth. So I, I would expect over the next few years in that fintech space that we'll, we'll see more coming out as to you know, what kind of products they're looking at, who, who's developing proprietary products that actually work. Um, and, you know, so that that's what I know about the automation. I know that uh, Angel, you know, did make an investment in a, in a fintech. That one right now, I guess, is more for asset management for some of their clients. It's not really directed at uh, underwriting uh, non-QM loans, but the desktop underwriter uh, 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 mentioned in the bond report, you know, that's the kind of thing I think we'll see more of moving forward into the next year and the next few years uh, as that market grows. So that's, you know, more reporting ahead on that. Yeah, looking forward to, to seeing what you find there. I, I do think, you know, that's the secret sauce for, for non-QM lenders is how they have figured out how to do that very complicated underwriting as efficiently as possible. And, you know, I mean, those those aren't where we saw some originators in the last year just staff up with, you know, like pulling teachers in, pulling people who wanted a job change in, and teaching them to do that sort of really easy refi underwriting. That is not the case with these loans and with these companies. I mean, these are these are very experienced underwriters who get paid a lot of money because you need them. You know, so so automation there is going to be interesting. Yeah, and it's it's true across the whole industry. There's a, a push for automation. Um, they're using desktop underwriter, the Fannie's product, to do jumbo loans. Um, in and both Fannie's using that, and you know the private label market. And there's there's a lot of arguments for it, but the the thing we don't know yet is going to take time is how those loans perform. And you know, right now the market is such that it's it's pretty low risk in the sense that prices are rising. These in you know, especially in the jumbo territory, um, even if somebody did have to, you know, get out of their home for some reason or lost a job or something, the odds are that they're going to be able to sell their home for more than they bought it for. So they're not going to be underwater like we saw back during the subprime crisis. Um, so maybe it is the time to try to integrate automation. And, you know, there's a little more space for error right now than trying to do it in a different kind of market. We'll see. But time will tell. No, no, great points there. And, and let's go now, you know, let's talk about that private label securitization market, because we saw a huge boom in that in 2021, right? These securitizations are backed by jumbo loans and mortgages on residential investment properties. Um, and we saw a huge demand spike uh, during this pandemic era for that kind of uh, buying, right? Uh, they also got a big boost from the PSPA changes put in place by the Trump administration in January, which capped the number of mortgages on investment properties and second homes um, that could be bought by Fannie and Freddie uh, to just like 7% of their acquisitions. So those changes have been rolled back. Um, and of course, there are other economic factors you know, in play looking forward, but what are experts predicting for private label securitizations in 2022? Well, you're right. This year was explosive. I mean, it was double uh, the volumes of the last two years, like not combined, but each year, um, year over year. And uh, next year, you know, it, it, I mean, it, who knows? I mean, there's projections you could, you could find all over the map, but the one, when I look at it, the one that I try to do apples to apples when I'm comparing numbers and the story I'm working on right now is based on the projections made by one of the bond rating agencies, Kroll, um, and next year, what, without giving away all the numbers, because, you know, read the story, you can get those, <laughs> but, but 
essentially next year is going to be a good year, but it's going to be flat in terms of growth. I mean, relatively flat. There'll be some growth. But that but that's based on, you know, expectations of interest rates rising. And therefore, a lot of the jumbo loans that were packaged in the loan pools um, for the private label market this year, which really drove the private label market. That was by far the biggest volume of securitizations is, is, is in that prime jumbo space. Those are expected to kind of taper off as rates bump up uh, next year. And that's because a lot of those were refied loans packaged in the loan pools, right? So some of that's going to dip off. And you're right, the PSPA the suspension of those, you know, that cap in, in September um, also going forward is going to, you know, lower the volume reaching the private label market is more of that scooped up by the GSEs. And the, and the same, I mean, with the loan limit increase. So in a sense, the GSEs are kind of a governor, if you will, on the private label market. What they scoop up, the private label market can't do. Um, and that's where there's some uh, tension maybe, or at least questions around where is the role of the GSEs versus the private label market? Where are those lines? And, and uh, you know, that's, you know, something that ultimately I think, you know, uh, at least people in the industry think Congress needs to weigh in on um, to give some more direction and, and definition of, of where these markets start and stop. But that's, that's kind of the, the scenario for next year. All that could change overnight, you know, if the GSEs, you know, decide, you know, that they're going to kind of address the loan limit issue or the PSPA return, return to capping some of the uh, investor property uh, loans that they, they purchase and securitize. So that, that, that overnight could change the volume protection for next year. But as it stands right now, we're looking at another good year, but not the same kind of growth that we saw this year. Um, I mean, actually, let's, let's put it this way. At the peak of the private label market, in the like 25, 2006, just before the crash, it was nearly 60% of securitizations, right? In the RMBS space. I mean, that's that, that, and even I think industry leaders today don't think we need, we'll, we, we will return to that level and maybe shouldn't, that might be too much, but certainly now it's, you know, below 5%, right? And, and um, I think they would argue it easily could be doubled, if not a little more, maybe tripled and still, the private label market would function well and serve as a you know a competitive um, counterforce to what the GSEs are doing you know and you know it depends what you think about how the market should work but more competition generally produces better results for borrowers um, because you know there's competition and for rates and everything else. Also, the the private label market, the, the folks, the issuers anyway would argue especially in the jumbo space, they have been very competitive when you look at rates that they can, they can handle these loans. And the more that's chipped away by the GSEs, you know, that's, that kind of lowers, (laughs) obviously for their own self-interest, lowers their ability to make, make money. And, um, you know, the bottom line though is uh, somebody's got to step back and look at who, what best serves the borrower and, you know, what best keeps the market functioning well and, and, and doesn't you know let it get out of control like we saw you know and and it's that's the boom and bust of the real estate cycle everyone knows about and it's a hard thing to to control for, but that's what we're trying to do or at least what all the the, the changes that have been made and will still be made uh, are about is trying to make the market function well and efficiently and not crash. 
It's so interesting because I've only been covering this industry. So I joined Housing Wire in 2013. So for my entire my entire experience with this industry is, um, you know, the GSEs have been in conservatorship. It's been a you know that that tiny private label uh, market. So it's interesting to me to see see this rev back up and uh, and look towards what that what that might be. Well, let's let's jump into some of that. Uh, you talked about the tension on the conforming loan limits, right? So the FHFA's new conforming loan limits, which you know they, they generally speaking have been going up every year, but saw a big jump this year because of the rise in um, home prices, right? But that raised my brows uh, among affordable housing groups and you know uh, companies like Redwood Trust, which is a major player in the private label securitizations. So Redwood Trust, you know, understandably has a business interest here, right? Um, but you know. Two of their objections were interesting from that larger perspective you were talking about, about what is the government's interest in these high value loans? How do they best serve the borrower? Um, You boiled them down to two main questions. So maybe you could you could um, the objections that Redwood Trust brought up, which were echoed by some affordable housing groups. So, you know, maybe you could revisit those questions. Well, I think the big issue that that they're kind of focusing on is when when. The GSEs put their resources into, uh, let's say, the jumbo loan market, like chipping away at that loan limit, making the loan limit rise. As the loan limit rise, it scoops up more of the traditional the, the jumbo loan territory. On a million, like in California, where a lot of this is, where most of the 50% of the jumbo loan securitizations in the private label market, and if you look through all the bond rating documents, they're in, out of California, where you know I think the median price is over $800,000 for a house, right? So the people that are buying million dollar plus homes in California, though, if you look at their income, and that was Redwood's argument, you know, you're talking about well-established middle to upper middle class um, buyers, like $200,000 to $300,000 a year to qualify for those kind of loans. And so their question is, how does that serve the GSE's affordable housing uh, uh, mission? Um, because it does two things. One is that they would say it diverts some resources uh, that could better be deployed, or at least attention, they could better be deployed programs to, to get people in on the lower end, like that, that don't have $200,000, $300,000 incomes that are that are actually, you know, struggling to buy homes at all. Um, and the other issue with it, um, uh, besides the, the, you know, the resources is, there's some argument that the private label market or private issuers have more experience in the jumbo space and, and actually are just as competitive as the GSEs, if not more so. Um, and the GSEs, you know, are have limited experience in that space. And the higher that loan limit goes, the more questions arise about, you know, are, you know, are they cookie cutter? Can you really, you know, do these without some, some, some more experience? Um, are they going to start making mistakes? Um, and again, we won't know because, you know, the market, every once in a while, people forget that it's not always underwriting that, that causes problems in the housing market. It can be like if the tech sector sector went under, a, you know, like the dot-com bus and we saw a bunch of people lose their jobs in the West Coast due to that, that would affect the housing market here um, in a big way. Um, so we don't know where these shocks come from. So. Um, that's one of their arguments. Let's let's let the private label market do what it does best, and let the GSEs do what they do best, and let's figure out what that is. The other argument with the loan limit creep is, you know, where does it stop? Because it's just it's just going to keep going up, and it somewhat supports higher prices. In other words, if the GSEs are underwriting these higher price loans, 
then that means they're easier to get generally because they're they're you know pushing out more of these loans and that kind of means that prices are supported so if there's all kinds of buyers for these million two million dollar homes because the gses are are you know cookie cutter underwriting them then that supports and props up those prices you know they're not going to drop it you know supply and demand so you know how much of that is true i don't know but that is an argument around the edges that these these uh, higher loan limits actually prop up higher housing prices in in the markets where they're they're existing, and we'll see what happens. I think the new uh, director, or she's the acting director, who was just nominated um, to be permanent, uh, Sandra Thompson. Um, you know, has a, a I think a real vision of of advancing affordable housing in the country. It's desperately needed. If you look at cities like Seattle, where I live, and and uh, it's it's crazy how many homeless folks are here. Um, and it's because in some measure, the housing prices are just out of reach of the average person in many cases. Now, I, for example, couldn't sell my home and buy a similar home. You know, I'd be downsizing or even if I could get one, even though my, so we're house rich, but we can't move. Right. And that also affects the housing market in terms of turnover and, and, and housing sales. So somewhere along the line, we got to get the balance right. And I think that's what Redwood was trying to bring up. Um, and I think. Sandra Thompson is, is based on her comments. She's open to reviewing it in the sense of she wants to look at that loan limits in the context of affordable housing. So we'll see what happens. Um, it's there's so much going on, so much polarization in the country that it's difficult to see uh, smart policy uh, compromises coming out of Washington right now. But maybe this is something that that, that can bring uh, more people across the aisle together because it's not really a Republican or Democratic issue. I mean, home ownership is just an American issue. <laughs> so there you go. I love that positive, optimistic take right there. Yes. So this could be, you know, housing should be what can maybe bring us together more. I, I, I like that. Um, you know, we've seen such a change this year with the you know, from the, you know, there was just sort of a whiplash from, you know, the Obama years to the Trump years, now back to, you know, Biden, where it's like, as far as regulation, as far as um, really having active regulators and, and active agencies um, in, in D.C. So it it will be interesting to see how, how Thompson um, continues to address this. You know, one of the things that you've brought up a couple of times is just like, we'll, ha- we'll have to see how these loans perform. So that loan performance, when we're talking about, um, private labels market, different kinds of um, non-QM is really interesting. And you wrote a story last week on loan review practices in the private label market and and some of the yellow flags that were uh, being raised by KBRA on loan sampling. What did Kroll find troubling there? Well, it's 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 kind of a geeky story. So, um, you know, it, it, most people... Oh, we love geeky stories. Yeah, this, yeah, you yeah. know, listen, if you're a housing geek, you we want you to be well, reading. I mean, what they brought up is a, is a legitimate concern, but it also kind of runs up against the reality of how, um, you know, business works in, in, in the housing market in real time. So in a, in a social science uh, sense, which is statistics, loan sampling is something that's become much more popular over the last year because of the volume coming through the market. So if you've got a 3,000 loan pool, 3,000 loans in a loan pool being securitized, Re, basically re-underwriting or examining every one of those loans again in time to get the issue to market, especially when there's a stacking effect already going on where you've got multiple deals just stacked up because there's not enough people to get all the work done. And that time costs money in that market. Um, so 
they're, they're doing a lot more loan sampling. So they'll pull a sample of maybe 300 loans out of, out of a 3,000 pool. And, and the idea is those 300 loans are representative of the whole pool. Um, and the, the best analogy here to try to get across the, the, the statistics part is if you had a classroom of 30 kids and you pulled out the five uh, you know, most disruptive kids that had the worst grades and then you did the average grade for the class, it would be higher than if you included and kept those five kids in there and, and included their grades. Now, at the end of the, the year, those kids might come around or three or four of them might come around and be A or B students. But, you know, you're still kind of. Uh, when you when you pull those students out and, and measure at that point, you're still creating a kind of a biased sample. And that's the concern that Kroll has is that what's happening is these loans, are, these securitization pools are moving so fast, they're sampling them. And then maybe, uh, I don't know, out of a 300 loans that they're sampling, maybe 10, they have to you know pull out for various reasons because they're just, they can't get the review done, underwriting review done in time. Or they're coming up with you know C's and D's on them, but it's for reasons that they're pretty sure they can cure. You know, once they do a little more underwriting and investigating, that those will pop up to A or B. But it's just taking too long, so they pull them out of the sample, and then they you know rate they're rating the entire pool based on what amounts to a skewed sample. How do you fix that? It's a difficult thing because you know there's not a, it's not like oh we'll just don't pull them out because then the deal gets delayed and that you know that can cause other problems. Do you do more disclosure in the bond reports? Because that's one of the issues they brought up that it's really the nature of what the loans that were pulled. There's not a lot of discussion about that normally in the bond, in the, in the reports from the due diligence firms that are doing this. And then consequently in the bond rating firms. So um, that that's some of the discussion in industry. Like, and then the third thing, I guess, is investors are already buying these bonds. They must accept. I mean, it's a little more risk maybe, but they're willing to take that risk. Do they really, do they really care? Is this really an issue? If it's not an issue for, for the bondholders, then is it an issue for the industry? But remember, and this is my, I didn't necessarily say this in the story, but th these are just little things now that can grow into bigger things. But one of the problems in the subprime crisis was toxic assets where a lot of bad loans were getting mixed with good loans and bought up by you know insurance companies and banks and everyone else that holds hold these bonds. And that's that contributed greatly to the crisis. So um, I'm, we're nowhere near that. That's not what this story said, but it's it's one of those things where they they a good analogy in the story that the rating firm came up with is they talked about a researcher in in World War II that was you know retained by the government to to kind of figure out where to put the armor on planes because they were getting shot down right over Europe and so forth. And uh, the researcher made the decision to not put the armor. You know, they were looking at the returning planes and where the bullet holes were. And they said, well, let's beef up, you know, those places. And he said, no, no, we need to consider the planes that didn't return. So we should put the armor where the bullet holes aren't. In other words, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of what what, you know, we're trying to solve for the last crisis or we're always fighting the last war. I mean, the industry, you know, should not it's not likely the same scenario uh, of events is going to ever happen again. But we're going to have different issues that that we need to control for, and that's kind of I think what the spirit of the of Kroll was, uh, the Kroll report was trying to get across is that let's pay attention to this now, figure out how we want to handle it, and any issues we have like this, so they don't grow into big problems later. It's great to see something like that to you know where we're thinking ahead. This is a very reactive industry in many ways. And, um, you know, some sometimes it, it swings back and forth. Sometimes I feel like people are stuck in 2008. 
Um, and you know, they're, they're afraid of the same things that it's probably never going to be the same things again. It's, it's going to be variations on that theme, but you know, it's not like we're going to make those exact same mistakes again, but still it's interesting to see, um, you know, especially when it comes to loan sampling, especially when we're looking at how we're looking at the quality of those loans, really important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also just the, um, you know, like we mentioned the performance of the, of the loans, it, it does appear in this particular segment of the market that we're in that, you know, the underwriting is clearly far better, far right. better than it was back in the subprime era. And, you know, the nature of the loans, I mean, we can, the arguments over where the loan limits should be are, are, are pertinent, but these are still, you know, houses that are going to, you know, people with some means at that limit, the jumbo limit, and the houses themselves are rising in value. So um, part of the reason the jumbo loan and the limits are going up is we're seeing this precipitous rise in housing prices, which appears some initial reports is going to continue or escalate next year. Um, And we all know why that is to a large extent is because we can't build enough houses to, to supply the market at a level that keeps prices somewhat contained and not so volatile. Um, but that'll start to happen eventually, right? Eventually, the, the, there will be more housing supply, and that's going to have an impact. But we're in a point in the market now where there's not enough housing supply, and there's a lot of demand. Um, and it's interesting, because I didn't mention the gig workers completely, but the gig economy, I guess I'm part of the sort of the gig economy now, not, uh, not completely, because I do have a payroll job. But those people that don't have payroll W-2 jobs are all non-QM territory. And there's a lot of people out like out there like that. And they're not all buying in Seattle or all this high price cities. I mean, now they can live wherever they want in this, this economy. The COVID world has created some different dynamics. So markets that were, you know, uh, markets that traditionally didn't attract buyers at the level they, they are now, um, you know, that's changing. I can live in the country if I want and still do this job. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that works out. And that's where um, the non-QM market is going to play a role is as the gig economy, the non-W2 economy expands and it's, you know, it's still growing. Um, those are all home loans that, that they can make. Um, and they're going to be made in all different parts of the country uh, now, um, the way things look. So it's an interesting era. Um, and I, I expect, you know, we'll see some some major landscape changes in the, in the housing market in the next five, 10 years, assuming, you know, things stay on this track and we, 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 we continue to work as, you know, kind of self-employed gig workers and as technology makes, you know, where you work less and less uh, pertinent. Yeah, great, great points all. And uh, actually love that you're in Seattle, right? Right at some of the heart of this, right? So much of the housing story, you're representative of that West Coast, uh, very expensive market. You live it. So uh, I'm sure that helps with your, your your lived experience there. But Bill, so appreciate you taking the time to talk about what you're reporting on. And we're excited to see some of these articles that you were talking about that uh, are going to come out over the next couple of weeks. Um, thank you so much for, for being on. No, it's fun. I appreciate it. Well, we'll do this again. We, we do this every day on Housing Wire Daily. We talk to our um, reporters about what they're covering and the stories that our listeners need to know. And for our listeners, you can check out Bill's coverage on housingwire.com. His articles are only available to our HW Plus members. Uh, well worth it just to read his articles. And we've got uh, other people as well on, on that HW Plus um, you know, reporting beat. So um, thank you so much, Bill. And we uh, will talk to you again. Okay. Take care.
Looking for more insight into what will happen in 2022? Or maybe you need more information on what in the world is happening with the federal regulators. Or you could just be looking for information on how to stay competitive as the industry shifts to a purchase-focused market. Our HW Plus Premium Membership comes with all of this insight and more. With your HW Plus Membership, you'll get at least five HW Plus articles a week that dive deeper into the daily news to help you confidently make business decisions. To join, go to housingwarrant.com forward slash membership. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.